Okay, joining me on the Freedom Pact podcast today, I have Mike Massimino, former NASA astronaut, professor, author of the new book, Moonshot, a NASA Astronaut's Guide to Achieving the Impossible. Mike Massimino, welcome to the Freedom Pact podcast. Thanks very much for having me. When I was reading your book, um, you described the feeling of looking back on Earth as, quote, a view from heaven. Can anything prepare somebody for that kind of view? No, not really. Uh, you, you know, you hear about it, you know, it's going to be amazing. But there's something about being in the moment. Uh, I think it's maybe, you know, looking up at a, a great piece of architecture or, you know, the Sestine Chapel ceiling or the Grand Canyon here in America. Uh, you know, certain things, uh, or, you know, some of the sites in, in England, you know, around London or other places. Yeah, they're just, you hear about them, you can watch video and, and look at pictures and so on, but but there's nothing like actually being there. And uh, so I, there's really, really nothing that can prepare you. You know, it's going to be wonderful. You know, everyone is changed by it and you look forward to looking forward to it. But yeah, there's really nothing, there's really nothing like actually seeing it yourself. I love stories of successful people who didn't really have a blueprint for what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, if we look back on your story coming out of high school, you really had no blueprint to becoming an astronaut. Where does that journey even start? Because you said, you know, I'm not a natural. Um, you didn't really, what sort of odds did you give yourself at that point? And where does someone even begin when they don't really know what the blueprint is for the career they want? Uh, yeah, I, for, for me, uh, I, you know, I thought about or dreamt about being a, an astronaut as a little boy. I'm old enough to remember Neil Armstrong on the moon and, and watching that uh, moon landing and moonwalk and learning about the astronauts at that time. Maybe want to grow up to be an astronaut. That's what I really wanted to do. And I think a lot of kids probably at that time and a lot of kids still today, you know, they, they hear about becoming astronauts would be a fun thing to do and a cool career. And, but by the time I was, you know, eight or nine or years old, I, you know, I, I thought being an astronaut was impossible. I didn't see myself as a thrill seeker or as a test pilot hero like Neil Armstrong and kind of cross it off the, the possibility list. And it wasn't until I was in college that I started to think about it. When I was actually getting ready to graduate college, thinking about what I wanted to do and, um, I went to the, I saw a movie called The Right Stuff that year, my senior year in college, and it's based on a book by Tom Wolfe. So I saw the movie and read the book and it got me thinking again about the space program and things had changed. And back when I was a little boy, all the astronauts were military test pilots, pretty much. I mean, some had other, they did have some scientists, astronauts that they picked uh, in the Apollo program, but predominantly it was military test pilots. But now by the time I had grown up, it was different. It was um, the shuttle program had started and it wasn't just military test pilots. They still were a big part of the program, but we also, they also had a lot of civilians and first people of color, the first women, a lot of scientists and engineers. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, you know, and this may be something I could at least try, you know, I'm, I'm eligible. It looks like, I don't know if I'll ever get picked. In fact, I thought I never would, but I thought at least I could try. And maybe if not, I could have a career with NASA. So I think to, to answer your question about how do you map that out? I, I think the best advice uh, that I got on that um, was from uh, when I was picking out my major in, uh, in when I was an undergraduate in college, uh, the Dean of Students, his name was Jim Parker, um, Dean Parker, I spoke, speaking to him about, you know, what do I take? And 
you know, and this time I wasn't thinking about astronaut or what we're going to do for a job or anything at this time, but he suggested just looking at the courses for each one of the different majors that we had and seeing what, what I thought was most interesting. And I think that's pretty good advice to, and that's the way I chose my major. And, and that's the way I kind of looked at it uh, moving forward that you should try to make decisions based on what you're interested in and what you're, you're passionate about and uh, not worry necessarily too much about, is this going to get me to where I want to go? I mean, you know, I think you want to think about that, but with the astronaut job, there's so many different ways to go at it. I, I've flown in space uh, with military test pilots and with other high-performing people from the military. And I've also flown in space with a lot of civilians, uh, some astronomers and physicists and, and um, air, you know, engineers. And you would think those are traditional jobs, maybe or career paths. But I've also flown in space with a geologist. My friend Drew Foistel was a field geologist looking for oil with an oil company out in the field when he was selected to be an astronaut. And Megan MacArthur, my crewmate, was an oceanographer. And uh, she has an interesting story because she was taking aerospace engineering and then she got involved with, as part of that, um, driving the submarine in, in, their, uh, in the, their entry as, an, as a college student in its underwater submarine races. And she learned how to scuba dive and fell in love with the ocean and changed her major you know, she thought, oh, I want to be an astronaut. I got to become an aerospace engineer. But she really loved the ocean. And she decided she wanted to study ocean oceanography. She got some advice from another oceanographer named Kathy Sullivan, um, who she ran into. And Kathy was also an, ast was an astronaut well before either Megan or I were. But um, but I was talking to Kathy about that conversation she had with Megan when she was in college, when Megan was in college, about how, you know, Kathy was an oceanographer and, and became an astronaut and how... I think you have to look at it. Well, if I don't become an astronaut or I don't get to that goal, um, I don't want to do things just for that. Uh, I want to do things that I actually enjoy that will help me, that will help me and lead me toward a happy path if I don't get to that ultimate goal. But I think also by doing that, you give your chance, yourself the best chance to be selected and to get to that goal. I think by following your bliss, following your, your dreams, your interests, your passions, uh, that I think is the way to go. Not doing things just because I, you know, you want to you want to do something because it's hard. it doesn't always work that way. I mean, if you want to be a lawyer here in America, anyway, you got to go to law school and pass a bar exam. I mean, there's some some careers are kind of you know all right, you know that's the way to go here. But uh, for astronaut, it's it's uh, it's a still a, a science and uh, um, you know, STEM fields what we call you know the science, technology, engineering, and math fields are what's going to get you there. But it's pretty wide. I also flew in space with a veterinarian who grew up loving animals and wanted to be a veterinarian and was selected also to, to be an astronaut in addition to being a, a veterinarian. So I think the best thing is to follow what you're interested in and, uh, and always keep an eye on that goal. I mean, so I wanted to, when I decided I wanted to try to pursue the astronaut job and the space program, I decided to go to grad school and I went into me mechanical engineering, also studied technology and policy in grad school because I was interested in that stuff. I didn't know you know, I kind of figured that wouldn't hurt me uh, trying to become an astronaut. It certainly wasn't going to hurt my chances. But for me, I thought it would give me the best chance because those were things that I was interested in. So I got a degree in technology and policy. And I also got a couple of degrees in mechanical engineering in graduate school. And uh, that's but that's what I wanted to do. And th those were things that I enjoyed doing. I was interested in learning more about. And it also was good for my astronaut application. So I think that's what you want to do is no, don't do anything that's going to hurt your chances to accomplish things. But there's many ways usually to, to accomplish a goal. And usually the best way is 
is thinking about what you're going to enjoy the most and what you're most interested in pursuing. Now, before you selected your major and this plan started to formulate in your head, if you go back to high school, secondary school, even younger, Mike Massimino, aside from the sort of childhood wonder of space exploration that I think all young children sort of dream about at one point, was there any other indicators that pointed towards you maybe pursuing a career or did you particularly have uh, an aptitude for, for science, for physics? Was there any other indicators? Oh, well, I did. I mean, I did like math and science. And so I think even though I wasn't thinking about becoming an astronaut beyond like age eight, uh, there was still, um, there were, you know, what I still, what I really liked in math as, as a elementary school student, you know, like age 10, 11, though, at that age, um, math was my favorite subject and uh was was always kind of the 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 thing i liked the most in school subject wise and then uh when i got to um high school and i took physics that uh that kind of that really uh was a was uh, interesting for me i took physics it was the uh, it happened to coincide that year that i that i was studying physics in high school secondary school i guess you would call it um i am um, uh, it was also Einstein's 100th birthday. Right, he was long gone, but uh, it was a hundredth, you know, his hundredth, his hundredth birthday. And so there was a lot of stuff on television and, and in magazines and newspapers about it. And uh, and so that just kind of added to my interest. And I, I thought I thought physics was was very interesting because it was kind of applying math to solve problems. You know, it was like doing puzzles and stuff. I really enjoyed doing. And and so that that was an indication to me. I remember going to basketball practice. When I was a junior, eleventh uh, grader in uh, in high school in, in the in the states, and uh, I remember we we had taken like a water break uh, during the during the practice, and I remember going back on onto the basketball court and thinking to myself, "Oh, this is great!" And I get to play some more basketball, and then I go home and get to do my physics homework. I was actually looking, and I actually stopped in my tracks. I was like, "Whoa, wait a minute!" I'm actually looking forward to going home and doing my homework. And I'll never forget that because I, I I think I think your heart and your soul your 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 brain uh, you, it tells you stuff and you got to listen to it and that was one of the universe is speaking to you or someone saying something to you I felt like every once in a while where I would you know see or hear something that would really affect me I'm like the universe or me or my my interests or something is talking to me here and I remember that very distinctly and it's like wow you know I really like physics I thought I was going to be a physics major in college. And then I started learning more about engineering, and uh, where, which was taking math and, and and physics and other classes like that, and science and math and and building things and learning how to design things. And I thought that was that would be really interesting. So, um, I I think what happened was is that I just followed the stuff since I liked math and science, and I liked the idea of, of becoming an engineer. I, that's what I decided to study, but it wasn't to become an astronaut. I was just looking to get an education and and then get a job afterwards you know it wasn't i didn't have any huge aspirations of doing anything monumental or flying in space or anything like that at the time now your story uh especially the story you tell in this new book um there's a lot of how you dealt with setback and and persevered but before we get to all that was there ever a point because as i mentioned at the top you you say i'm not neil armstrong I'm not a natural, I'm an astronaut afraid of, of heights at one point. 
Mm-hmm. Was there any point where you suffered from imposter syndrome at all along your journey? Yeah, all the time. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's normal, in my opinion, to feel that way, to to feel humble. I don't know. I don't know if it was like, oh, I, I think at times I feel like I don't belong here. I can't, I'm not up to the task, but I got to keep going. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's natural for people especially when you're pushing yourselves and you're amongst a lot of other high performing people uh to and you've gotten this great opportunity it's like oh do i really belong here you know and you, whether you're in you know in college or graduate school or whatever i kind of felt like oh geez you know this is really when i was doing these things i always felt like i was kind of pushing myself and do i really belong and uh, it usually would take me a little while to, to get over that <laughs> but uh but i certainly had those feelings uh all the time pretty much uh particularly in you know higher education in college and in graduate school and in the astronaut office as well is a pretty high performing group of people that I was amongst and uh I mean like what am I doing here so I feel like that all the time but I think that's kind of okay I don't think this, as long as it doesn't prevent you from trying you know I would I would feel very much out of my comfort zone uh trying to do things uh, or you know applying to things or going you know trying to become an astronaut there were things that really pushed me out of my comfort zone. And you know, I felt, oh man, I'm not cut out for this. Every, you know, these other people are, but as long as, long as it doesn't stop you, I, I think it gives you a respect for what's happening, which I think is good. And then a real appreciation for it when, if it does happen and you do get that opportunity, because once you get an opportunity like that, you know, you get the opportunity. It doesn't mean you've done anything yet. I mean, you've done a lot to, to get the opportunity, but you still haven't comp- accomplished anything with that opportunity. And what are you going to do with it? And so I think it's good to have, uh, to uh, a, a lot of gratitude and uh, appreciate the opportunity you have, and maybe that also is part of the what you might say the imposter syndrome. But, but I think as long as that doesn't debilitate you or stop you from from trying or stop you from performing, I don't I don't really think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's okay to be grateful and uh, and humble. For a lot of high performers and successful people. Uh, for those looking on, it's easy just to look at the finished product and assume that they've always been that way. Now, you talk about getting rejected from the astronaut program twice originally before even reaching any sort of interview or assessment stage. Mm-hmm. Now, for a lot of people, when they apply for a dream, getting rejected is almost an easy out into into giving up. Um, I think mm-hmm. back to a, a journalism job I really wanted years and years ago, I had to apply seven times before I got an interview. And I remember after the first time, that was the only time I thought to myself, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this is a sign it's not for me. And I could have given up there. It's almost an easy out to stop trying. Mm-hmm. What was your mindset like when you first received that initial re- uh, rejection? And was the second rejection easier or harder to take than the first? Um, I, I think that uh, what, what I found uh, over over the years, I didn't necessarily know this back then, but uh, all the successful people I've met, whether they're astronauts or athletes or musicians or business people or politicians that have been very successful, they're not those who never failed. They're those who never let failure stop them. And I, I think that, you, I, to me, success is trying. And not giving up and so i yeah the first rejection i got i was like oh okay you know but i didn't really i didn't really ever expect to really get picked 
I think. I mean, I knew that I was trying for something very difficult, and I knew I couldn't control the outcome here, but I could certainly keep trying. I, I could control that. I could try to put in the, my, my best foot forward, put in my best effort, and that's all I could do. And so my goal was more to make it a tough decision for them to reject me. <laughs> that's what I felt like I was trying to do, as opposed to ensuring that they would pick me. And the only way to do that is to just just keep trying. So, I, I mean, I got I got disappointed the first two times. The third time, I got medically dis I got an interview, and the interview is not just an interview, but it's also a a, a bunch of medical exams. And um, I uh, I was I was medically disqualified. I failed the eye exam that time, and uh, that was that was pretty uh, pretty disappointing because I couldn't even try again. I wasn't allowed to. Once you, I mean, I, I could submit an application. They weren't going to read it anymore is what they told me. So once you're medically disqualified, you're considered unfit for duty and, and that's it. And I, the problem I had is no longer a problem nowadays for anyone who's applying to be an astronaut. It was the vision standards back then. You had to see pretty well without your contacts or your, or your glasses. And uh, I couldn't pass at that standard. Now it's not an issue. They've waived all that stuff. It's all gone now. Those, re those regulations, you know, almost 30 years later, but um but back then you had to see pretty well without contacts or, or glasses and I couldn't do it. And so uh, I ended up getting disqualified and I asked if there's anything I could do to fix it. And they're like, no, you can't. There's, it's never been overturned. And so I thought that was pretty disappointing, but I found out I had to do something. I found out about vision training, which was a tech techniques that were done with uh, smaller kids to improve their vision. And I found some, uh, an optometrist, uh, an eye doctor who specialized in it and told her I could be really immature. Can you give me a, give me a chance. And she helped me. Uh, I was able to do better at the eye exam. I was able to pick up a couple lines on the eye chart just so I could get that, um, that disqualification overturned. And so to me, that was, um, that was a bump in the road, but I had to figure out a way to get around it. Just so I just wanted to be able to try. And I've heard all kinds of stories from astronauts who, who had all kinds of issues with things and were able to get around them. Um, and I think you're right that if you, if you throw up your hands and give up, I mean, I think, and use it as an excuse, I think maybe that's okay. But as long as it's that, that's that you weren't that interested in it, I think it's better to say, oh, you know, I mean, if you, if you really want to do something, then I think you, no matter what happens, you got to keep trying, but maybe if there's something else that's more important to you, if you decided, well, no, I'm not that passionate about it, but you've got to be really, you got to think really hard before you give up on something. Um, when I failed my, um, my qualifying exam in graduate school. I was a graduate student at MIT. I was trying to get my PhD and they have this exam you have to pass in order to, to continue in the PhD program. And I failed it miserably. And I was told, I, you know, I was told I did really poorly and I could take it again, but they didn't really expect that I did much of a difference. It was so bad <laughs> the way I'd done. So I felt bad about it. And, and I was, so I was thinking, all right, maybe, maybe I, you know, I only spend, you know, maybe I go for another degree or there was a, you know, there was, there was another degree I might be able to go for. It wasn't a PhD. It's called the mechanical engineer's degree. And I remember uh, calling the Dean's office to, uh, to talk about it. I knew the Dean, his name was Frank Perkins. He wasn't there, but there was a guy by the name of Ike Colbert, who was a, the assistant Dean at the time. And uh, he was in the office and he took the call and uh, very gratefully did because I told him what happened. And he said, you know, Mike, before you give up, you need to think because he was telling me, yeah, you could do this and that you can do whatever. And he said, but he says, you need at this point in your life, at this moment, you need to think really hard 
of whether or not you want to give up on that big brass ring is what he called it. I think that was, you know, we call the big brass ring on a merry-go-round, the thing you reach for. And uh, I don't know if you have that in England as well, but you're in a, that's what we call in the States, right? The big brass ring. But it was also because MIT had a, the class ring you would get was a brass, was a, it was a, they call it the brass rat because it had a, it had a, a beaver was their, their, the school mascot on it. So I think he was referring to that too, the big brass ring. And I remember him saying that, like, you really want to, you really want to just stop here a minute and think about it. And, uh, you know, I thought about it and decided I wanted to give it another try and, uh, went to see my advisor who had delivered the bad news a day or two earlier and told him I wanted to continue, give it another try at least. And, and he said, uh, you know, Mike, if one can learn to live with indignities in life, one can go far. And I think that's what he was saying that, uh, you know, if you, if you get beat up and knocked down and you can get up again and keep going, you can go far in life. But if you're fragile and brittle and all of a sudden you get told no or you get rejected at something and that and you give up and forget, I don't think you're going to really go anywhere. So you really, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to achieve anything. You're not going to achieve your dream with that kind of, with that kind of, uh, with that kind of reaction. But maybe that, you know, it, but if it's, it, I mean, it could be for the right reasons, you know, there's an ending to everything and sometimes it's time to move on. Um, but, uh, but if not, if you, you've got to be, I think people, you just need, what I found is I needed to be honest with myself. And when I was really honest with myself, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm not, I, I, I feel like, I don't know if I'm really qualified to do this. There's so many great people. It's like the hardest job in the world to get because it's so competitive. And that was all true, but was also true. It's the thing I wanted to do more than anything else. And that was kind of an unfortunate alignment of things, right? Something I really wanted to do. That I felt was nearly impossible, but uh, as long as you try, there's a chance. The first chapter in the book discusses it's 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 entitled "One Out of a Million Is Not Zero. That as long as you try, there's a chance. When there's like a you know, if you look at one out of a million, it's a small number. It's a decimal point with a lot of zeros and a one at the end. That's non-zero. That is not zero. But as soon as you give up, then that one also turns into a zero, and you know the outcome. You won't be successful. No one's going to come knocking on your door to do these kind of things. You're going to have to pursue them. I really love this messaging and this was actually my the most compelling part of the book for me. I remember pausing at the end of this chapter and really thinking about it because I mentioned having an easy out when you get your initial rejection, but you touched on it there, being medically disqualified uh, your third time. Your one in a million seemingly turns to zero. Now, once you're told that you're disqualified for something you have or you imagine you have no control over that is a very easy out because you can give up on the dream mm -hmm. almost with your head held high and say, yeah. there's nothing I can do about it. And you That's can it. sort of give up on the dream without feeling bad about it. So mm -hmm. to then turn that around, that demonstrates a level of, of perseverance that I imagine so many other people would have given up at that point. What do you put that level of perseverance down to? Because I can't imagine many people in that scenario would even think about something like eyesight training. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know about it. Find out about this, but I, you know, I, I found out about it, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I think there's always a way around it. I, I, I think the thing is just to try, and maybe the, the vision training wouldn't have worked, and maybe I would have tried. So I don't know what else I could have tried because they didn't, they didn't accept any surgical procedures back then or anything. So, I, I think to me, it's just, it's just not giving up. The idea of giving up was was unthinkable. It was not acceptable. I would never. I would not be happy with myself if I gave up. And 
as I talk to people, I think a good thing, it's something that helped me too, is that I talk to people about it. You know, I talked to other people that had overcome medical disqualifications and the astronaut, and they never had to deal with this, but but they had other things and how to look at it and how to approach it. And that you know, things, conditions do change. And uh, that I wasn't the only one that had to ever fight a medical disqualification. Um, mine just was not the one that, that typically people were able to overturn. But um, but I, th I think the idea for me was, is that what I kept in my head was, is that if they, if they keep telling me, no, I can live with it because that's their decision. They can pick who they want. And if they have better candidates than I, than me, um, in their opinion anyways, cause that's the one that counts uh, for whatever, whatever the reasons are, I can live with it. You know, that's okay. I can live with that, but to not even try, that's me taking myself out of it. And that was unthinkable. And so I just had to figure out a way to get back in the game, no matter what. I just had to, yeah, I just had to get in there. And and if they told me no, that's okay. I, it's not that's not my my fault. That's that's just the way it is. They're better people they're looking at, or people they like better for the job, and that's fine. That's very understandable. But for me to take myself out of it, I, I don't think I could ever be happy with myself if I would have done that. I would have never forgiven myself, and I've just gone through the rest of my life mad at myself because <laughs> you only get one shot at this, you know. So. You might as well, might as well do it, you know. And it, the thing too is that as I was move, going along, I remember even after my fourth rejection, I mean, I'm sorry, after my fourth application, my fourth, uh, my fourth application, or you know, my the the fourth class that I applied to, um, after I got that second interview and I got through the eye exam, um, I was waiting for months, and I remember we ended up, so I interviewed in October and. We got the word, we ended up getting the word in April, but I remember being on vacation with my family in March during our spring break. I was teaching at Georgia Tech here at the Georgia Institute of Technology here in Atlanta in the States. And it was a pretty good job. You know, I just started that job. I liked it. I was enjoying the teaching and the research. And I remember being on vacation with my family thinking, well, you know, uh, they'll probably tell me no again. I mean, the odds are still against you. And even when you get to be a finalist, you know, there's still so many, so many good people they're looking at. But I knew that... Um, Hey, you know, look, look where I was, you know, my, my family was doing well. I had two kids at the time and, and they were little and we were having fun with them. And, um, I was teaching at Georgia tech. I had a nice professor job at Georgia tech and I had gotten my PhD at MIT. I had got some great work experience at NASA before I was a professor and, and had flown an experiment in space and was doing more space related research. I learned to fly airplanes. I had a private pilot's license. I'd learned to scuba dive. I had a scuba license. I had, I had all these things that, that I had done that were making my life pretty good. And, you know, if it didn't work out, uh, I was going to keep trying. But but I think just by the trying and pushing forward, even if you don't get to that final outcome that you want, you might find yourself in a lot better place than when you started. And that certainly was my case. Now, when you eventually are successful um, and you enter this program, um, you touch on this in the book that quite early on you were fortunate enough to have a talk off and eventually meet Neil Armstrong. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of people, when I mentioned that you were coming on the show on our social media, um, wanted me to ask you this question mm -hmm. on what you remember from that encounter and what mm -hmm. Neil Armstrong was really like. Uh, yeah, the first time I met him, and he was a huge hero. I just my you know my biggest hero and and uh it, i think it really is hard to 
to understand that how, what a big deal it was when they landed on the moon. It really, you know, I was very, I feel very fortunate that I was young enough, old enough uh, to remember it, but young enough that I can still remember it. <laughs> you know, it didn't happen. Yeah. It happened to me at a very early age. I was one of the very first things I remember was, was the moon, the Apollo program, guys going to the moon and low walking on the moon in 1969. And, and uh, it was, it was huge. I mean, it's, so this guy to me, and I was a little impressionable kid, and I was like, this is what you want to be when you grow up. You want to be Neil Armstrong, not just an astronaut, but you want to be this guy. And I never really thought of, you know, I never really knew what he was like. You know, I had maybe heard some things, but, but uh, you know, to meet someone who is that big of a hero, you know, what was he going to be like? And when he came to speak to my astronaut class in our very first week as astronauts, uh, he came to, to talk to us and... Uh, he wasn't living in Houston any longer. He was, you know, I think at that time living in Cincinnati or somewhere in Ohio and he was teaching at the University of Cincinnati maybe, but I, I think that's kind of where he lived. But anyway, he came to Houston and uh, to talk to us and uh, he was like very shy and almost um, like almost a reluctant hero. You know, he was, he uh, didn't even, when he addressed us, he didn't even talk about the moon. He talked about test flying the X-15 and what that was like. He really loved the flying and the engineering behind it. And um, and then when we went to the questions and answers, we asked him about the moon. You know, we got to ask these questions about what was it like or whatever we wanted to say. And and uh, but he was certainly very very humble. And then when I, the next day, I end up being online next to him on, for lunch. Can you imagine? So uh, so I I got I got to say something to him. You know that I didn't get a chance to ask him a question back then but uh you know when i first met him when he when he addressed my class but i asked him you know what did he say when he how did he come up with what i knew what he said he said one small step for man one giant leap for mankind but i asked him how did he come up with that because as a little kid when i heard that i was like holy cow this is amazing how'd you come up with that you know did your wife tell you to say that did you hire a publicist what happened here and he looks at me kind of like strangely he says mike i didn't i didn't think about what i was going to say on the moon until after i landed on the moon I was like, really? And he went on to say that if I never landed on the moon, Mike, there'd be no reason to say anything. And then he went on to say, you know, you're, you, what you're dealing with here, Mike, you're new to this. I was a civilian coming into NASA, was only there a couple of days, right? And he said, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you've gotten yourself involved in a dangerous business and uh, serious, and you need to take the job seriously. And if you get distracted by all this public relations stuff and all that kind of thing, you, you know, bad things are going to happen. You got to, stick to your job and do your job and not worry about that other stuff. And so I thought that was really good advice. And then when I was asked to send the first tweet from space, I, uh, talking about your social media people, uh, I was going to, I was asked to do that by NASA and I said, yeah, sure. And then I was asked in a press conference right before the flight, what was I going to, as I, I thought about what I was going to tweet and I, you know, I channeled Neil Armstrong and said, I'm not worrying about that. We got to get to space first. I'll worry about that after we get to space. But then I found out when, when I opened my computer, that wasn't very good advice, I thought, because I couldn't think of a thing. And uh, I just sent, I said launch was awesome and the adventure of a lifetime has begun or something like that. And then I got made fun of on Saturday Night Live, which is a popular program here in the U.S. And they, uh, they said, uh, we have the first tweet from space and here it is. Uh, launch was awesome. <laughs> in 40 years, we've gone from one giant leap to, for mankind to launch was awesome. If we ever find uh, life in the universe, I assume this is how we'll be notified. And it shows my little Twitter thing. It says, geez, dudes, aliens. So that happened on a Monday. I, 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 that was on Saturday. They made fun of my tweet. 
And then the next Monday, my kids who were, I think, 13 and 15 went back to school. And, uh, you know, that, that Monday and everyone, I guess I was the talk around school the day, you know, dad got made fun of on Saturday Night Live and how cool that was. So I got some funny email from my kids saying, dad, they made fun of you on Saturday Night Live. All the kids loved it. So I got a little, got a little credibility amongst the kids, but, um, but I, you know, years later, I was, uh, watching a, a, a program and, uh, I think it was Neil Armstrong's brother or cousin or someone was on there. Uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Now 2019 is when this happened. And, and he said something about that. Neil showed him a piece of paper and, and it said, what, you know, what he was going to say on the moon. I'm like, Oh man, see, there it is. He did think about it. And, but then I saw his sons a few, um, like a week or so later, not very much. Cause we were doing events and I got, I got to know them, Rick and Mark, really nice guys. And I said, hey, look, let me ask you guys something. I saw this thing on TV about it was your uncle, your cousin, or so your dad's cousin or uncle's brother or something. And they go, oh, yeah, don't pay attention to that guy. He's always saying all kinds of stuff. And he, and they said that uh, if, if that's what dad told you, that was the truth. And I, I, know, I'm, I know that was the truth. And he was all about doing his job, um, but he was very capable in other areas. And I think he did have a poet in him because that was very poetic what he said. And he was all about the team. The If you look at the um, mission patches of all the of all the human spaceflight missions, including mine, uh, we all have our names of the crew on every patch, but there's one patch that stands out that does not have the name of the crew, and that is the Apollo 11 patch. There are no, there are no names of the crew on it. It's the only one that just says Apollo 11 on it, and that was because they wanted to deflect the attention, that they wanted to pay tribute to the whole team that got him there, and uh, he was all of his friends. Uh, other astronauts from that era, like John Young and Jim Lovell and uh, Alan Bean, uh, guys that I really respect and have given me a lot of great advice over the years. All of them have said when they talk about Neil Armstrong that he was the absolute right person, the perfect choice to be the first person to walk on the moon. And that was a great choice that NASA made uh, to have him do that. So I think he reiterated to me the importance of being humble and giving credit to others and being very appreciative of the opportunities you have and not blowing it, you know, because we all, once we became astronauts, we were all given this great opportunity and then, well, what are you going to do with it? You know, are you going to make the most of it or are you going to feel entitled and squander it? So uh, I, I think that was a very, a very important group of lessons that I learned from Neil and uh, getting a chance to know him was, was just really cool. So he was a very cool guy and someone, and someone to be admired. Um, what an amazing story and for what it's worth if I got to choose what I was getting made fun of for it would probably be something like sending the first tweet from space so nothing to, <laughs> yeah. nothing to worry yeah, about yeah no there. it was alright yeah, I'll take it yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned there something Neil said you this is a dangerous business now mm -hmm. the, the, there's so much uncertainty and, and, and anxiety that comes with a launch um, big big consequences when you know you are a high performer in that area what is your process like for remaining focused and as unaffected as you possibly can be in such a high stakes scenario like that uh it, it kind of depends on on what's in front of you if it's you know sometimes you have something come up and you have uh, time to think about it and and sometimes you don't but i think when it comes down to it, when you're actually 
in the moment of whether it's launching into space or doing a spacewalk or flying in the jet and something happens flying in you know in a in, a, in an airplane and you're you know something you get an emergency or whatever it is at that point i think you need to just kind of execute what you're ready to do and there are very few times uh that we were unprepared for something because we were trained so well and so and sometimes we needed to rely on our equipment and on our training and on our team and that's what i always would try to remember when i was going into something that could be a bit dangerous or uh challenging i would say all right you know remember remember the tr i call them three trusts which were trust your gear that your you know, your equipment will be there to help you when you need it um, trust your training you're well trained and and trust your team they'll be there to help you if you need some help wherever that team could be you know if it's in an airplane it might be the air traffic control the person you're you're flying with or your crewmates in space whoever that might be or the ground control team and then and then trust uh you know uh, trust yourself is the fourth one so trust your gear trust your training trust your team and then use those trusts to trust yourself so when you're in there in the heat of the moment and something happens i think it's best to rely on your training or when you're you know if something sometimes it's an expected event like i'm going to launch i'm going to do the spacewalk and we have a plan or i'm going to go on this television program i'm going to teach this class or i'm going to whatever the heck it is give this presentation you, you've thought about it and you have a plan and and as you, if you thought about a lot or a little whatever you you know you're as prepared as you're going to be and go in there and execute the plan, try to enjoy it. And uh, it's not the time to be, uh, to be scared. I think being nervous is okay. It shows that you're, those th things matter to you. If you're not nervous about something is probably doesn't mean that much to you. But uh, when, when things are important, you tend to be nervous about them. So I think that's okay. But I think when you get to the heat of the moment, it's time to execute and execute the plan and uh, get ready to, for things to go wrong and be able to react and, and to do all those things and and do it in a, in a safe and efficient way i think you need to just concentrate on what's going on and follow follow what you you've prepared to do and be able to improvise when necessary before we move into uh some of the fun listener questions the last question i have for you um that i took from the book was and this is one of my favorite quotes in the book when you say the single greatest gift i brought back from space was a new definition of home how did your experience in space change the way you live on earth uh the the beauty of the planet uh seeing it from space i've i've when i looked at it i i first my one of my thoughts was uh this is a heavenly view this is a view from heaven and then that was replaced by another thought which was this is what heaven must look like and i felt like i was looking into an absolute paradise and uh I believe that still today. I mean, I, so I, I think about it and even though I'm on the ground, I don't, you know, I get to go to space very much. I don't go to space anymore, but, um, I do have those memories. I try to describe them in the book for others to, to be helpful of, of what it, what the realization is, is that we're living in a paradise and we're really lucky to be here. And it's wondrous. I mean, you should be amazed every day. Try to take time out to be amazed, whether it's just looking around the, the room you're in and, and, and the, the, uh, the people around you, or whether it's looking at, a a mountain or or a uh, or you're in a park or you're at a museum or the architecture of the buildings or the the trees and grass around you whatever it is I mean, it's an amazing place I mean, this is unbelievable that we're here and you see the beauty of it from space but you get to interact with it every day down here and my concept of home changed in that um going around the planet uh, so many times and it, i think it hit me on my second flight 
toward the end of my second flight is when it did hit me that everything I've ever known or, or, or everybody that's ever lived is, has been right here on planet earth. And, and I started thinking of earth as home. So when I was a kid, I thought of the town I grew up in Franklin square as my home. And then as I got older, I identified it. Like, I mean, from, I'm from New York, you know, I tell people I'm in New York or that's my home. And we look forward to going back to New York when I wanted to go home. And then, and then I thought of the United States as my home as I traveled more around the country and was an astronaut and around the world. And I thought the United States, that's my home. And I, you know, th those places are all my home, but now I think of home, I think of earth and it's a home. It's a beautiful home that all of us share, no matter where we are, we all share the same place. So uh, that, that's how it, that's how it changed me. And, you know, you could, when I, you know, seeing, looking at the earth from up there and there was a moment where I we were going from, um, darkness into light and you can see that the dividing line the day night line we call it the terminator and it moves across the planet and what it is is the rotation of the planet and it's quite amazing because it gives you a chance to see the rotation because as it rotates another part of the earth lights up and just staring at that for a couple moments it was it's amazing because the earth is big man the earth is pretty big and it's just it's just moving so perfectly steadily gracefully and the thought i had was the word that came to mind was permanence that this has been going on for a long, long time you know billions of years and it's not stopping anytime soon it's going to go on long before long after all of us are gone but we're here now and we get a chance to enjoy the earth as much as we can and hopefully leave it in a better shape than we found it for future generations so those are some of the things that that uh, struck me when I was up there looking around. Wow, what a beautiful perspective. Um, so I mentioned on our Instagram that you were coming on the show and we had mm -hmm. uh, quite a few questions coming through. So I'm going to pick some of the, the better okay. ones here. Cool. Um, the first one, and I think this is an interesting question because there are so many TV shows and movies made about space that... Um, and we can never trust me uh, the the cinema. But what is the process of astronaut training? What is going on there? Uh, I think one of the good things is that once you're selected as an astronaut, they do everything they can, uh, the instructors, the trainers, to to make sure you're successful and <laughs> that you get through the training. So the reality of it is that uh, it's is a lot of it. A lot of it is learning to work as a team because there's so much of things, so much of it, so so many things to do on a space mission. Not any one might be too complicated, any one of those things, but because it's so complex, you need you need to work as a team. So a lot of it revolves on teamwork and they they get you ready to do something that is extraordinary. And, you know, the thought of flying into space, launching into space, doing a spacewalk, all these things might be a little daunting and they, they kind of are when you think about them, but but the training breaks it down and, and you start at the at the very beginning with something that might be more simple and you build up and build up and they get you ready to do extraordinary things, whether it's flying in a in a high performance airplane and or if it's doing rendezvous with a, with a spaceship or doing a spacewalk. All these things are pretty, pretty complicated things to do, but uh, but you're trained so well. And and I would say that the 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 thing about it that I found comforting was that uh when you needed help it was there for you so you weren't expected to be great at everything and and if you needed help it was always there for you the important thing is when you were having trouble was to to raise your hand and let people know let people know you needed some extra help and i found that was very comforting because you weren't expected to be great at everything 
but you were expected to speak up when you had trouble. Having been to space and being an astronaut, how does Mike watch or can Mike watch space movies? Yeah, no, I like space movies. Yeah? Yeah, sure, yeah. No, I like them very much. Uh, um, I, I like, especially like the ones where the astronaut is cool. As long as yeah. the astronaut is cool, it's fine with me. But uh, no, my, my favorite ones, my favorite movie of all time is The Right Stuff. Yeah. Uh, I also like Apollo 13. Mm. I, I like the ones that are based more like on historical fact. Yeah. And I really like First Man, which is the movie about Neil Armstrong. Mm. Um, I, I love watching that movie. So if I'm like on an airplane and have an hour or two to kill, I'll watch part of that. I'll watch that movie over and over again. I really love it. So um, so yeah, I love watching space movies. And it's also, you know, the science fiction too. I really like Star Wars and uh, some of the other movies. Uh that uh that are not factual but still very entertaining so yeah i love watching them it's interesting because um and i asked neil degrasse tyson this question when i spoke to him um mm -hmm. and he said he has a hard time watching movies like i think a few we named were gravity and, and yeah. the martian <laughs> and he finds it hard yeah, yeah. to watch them without sort of picking up on the inaccuracies is, is that something mm -hmm. that um you experience or d can you just remove that as a piece of fiction yeah, it's a movie. I don't care. I mean, if it, well, I think like uh, if you know the truth, I think it's more like I've heard um, talking to some of the Apollo guys or some of the guys about you know the movie, the right stuff. Maybe became you know, they thought a bit you know it was a the the book was more genuine and the movie was a little more you know not as factual and you know more like you know I don't know whatever you know but but or I heard one of you know, one of the Apollo guys say about First Man, oh, it kind of misrepresented the relationship of Neil and his wife. You know, they had a good relationship at the time. They ended up not not so years later. But uh, and I'm like, well, you know, that that's I mean, it, it's a story they're telling. I, I think as far as like the Neil might be referring to the scientific uh, yeah. accuracy of things. And uh, I mean, it's a movie. If you want to really learn scientific accuracy, you got to go to school, you know. I remember I was, uh, the movie Gravity, I, I did a, a bunch of promotion for it. I was still with NASA at the time when it came out. And uh, I was asked by NASA to do some promotion for the movie. Um, and I would, you know, I'd go and talk to people about it and uh, different screenings of the movie. And someone, someone I, I was, you know, I went to Hubble on my missions. And at the beginning of the movie, they show the the actors, George Clooney and, and Sandra Bullock are working on the Hubble Space Telescope. And and there's space walking on air. And Sandra Bullock is like, she's like an inexperienced medical doctor who's not really doing well. And, you know, is not, you know, it seems like she's having a little bit of trouble or something. Anyway, so someone asked me, why would NASA ever send an inexperienced medical doctor to fix the Hubble Space Telescope? Why would they ever do that? And I, I thought about it for a moment. I go, well, NASA did not send an inexperienced <laughs> medical doctor. It's a movie. You know, we... We also don't have Batman to help with crime fighting. You know, it's like, oh man, we've got we've got this crime wave. Where's Batman? Help? Well, Matt, Batman's make believe, and so is the movie Gravity. It didn't really happen. Yep. So I think that you know, well, let's enjoy it for what it is. It's an you know, it's kind of a fun movie, and uh, you know, or I don't know, fun is a lot of disaster stuff going on in that one. But uh, but I don't you know, I I think it's okay in my opinion. I like it when they show the astronauts to be cool, whether that's factual or not. I just like it because people think astronauts are cool when they see cool astronauts on a 
like George Clooney up there. So that's good. So up on the screen. So, uh, no, I think the movies are great. And, um, you know, if they take a little bit of liberties, but if it's not, especially if it's not a factual yeah. story, you know, I, I think that that's okay. Speaking of cool fictional astronauts, um, I actually recently read the book, The Martian. Um, very, very mm -hmm. good book, um, which leads me into the next question I can see here. When does Mike think a human will step foot on Mars? Yeah, I think that's going to be a while. I, I, I'm, I hope we get people uh, people on the moon in the next three to four years. Uh, we're going to have people orbiting the moon. I think that's going to happen for sure. I don't see why that wouldn't uh, in the next year or so to orbit again. But uh, to actually step foot on the moon, that's going to be a lot tougher. Uh, and then to go to Mars is going to be even tougher. It's just so far away. It's, a, it's, a, it's not just you know, getting there, which is a long distance. Uh, it's a six-month journey to get there. You know, the moon is about a day and a half to three days away. Uh, you can get there, but uh, you know, a low Earth orbit is eight and a half minutes. You know, it's but the you know, Mars you're talking a long time, and you can't go all. You can only go at certain point times of the year when the planets are fairly closely aligned. So uh, it's not an easy place to get to, and and also some of the the moon guys, you know, the the guys that went to the moon back fifty years ago. They'll tell you that you know they were really dependent, like they show in Apollo thirteen, really dependent on the on the um, uh, control center to help them. And you know you you're going to be so far away. You know, in you know in Apollo thirteen, when they said Houston, we have a problem, it was a couple seconds, and they would you know say you know what can we do to help? And then you know, but on the moon they're going to say Houston, we have a, on on Mars they'll say Houston, we have a problem, and like twenty to thirty minutes later, someone is going to say uh, what was that? You know, so. You're gonna to have to. You're gonna to have to come up with your own solutions and work more independently and take care of any medical emergencies. You're gonna be gone a long time, so there's a lot of challenges there, and there's a lot of uh, other, you know, other technical challenges like protecting people from radiation and and uh, water. You need water and food, and you need to be able to breathe something. You need the air to breathe, and there's none of that over there. And there may be some water. But they're gonna hopefully find that there are some places. For water on the moon as well that they can they can help with life support but but mars is so far away uh so anyway i i don't know i i, I hope we're back with people on the moon in three to four years i do know that like elon musk has has his sites for his company spacex to send someone to mars i don't doubt him uh he's a very credible he's made so many but i thought were really kind of uh very hopeful statements and He's come through on him. So I, I wouldn't doubt it that he might be able to get someone there uh, faster than NASA might even. Who knows? But but I think that's probably still at least 10 years away before we have someone landing there. But I don't know. Maybe I'll be wrong. It'll be sooner. I hope it is. I think what they're referring to here are the sort of subsection of people that approach space uh, travel and, and space history with a level of skepticism. And they're asking mm. whether you take personal offense to that and how you sort of look on at those people yeah i mean now people can believe whatever they want um but uh I, you know what do you mean like faking the moon landing and stuff like that those kind of i, I mean it's it's i think that it's it may be uh, incredible to believe but we did put people on the moon and i think in some ways it is a bit you know in some ways it can be a bit disrespectful to say it didn't happen because a lot of people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were involved in that program, which I think, I think the Apollo uh, program 
uh, is the most amazing program, a technical program for sure, uh, ever, ever conducted. I mean, it, it really attracted the best talent from around the world. And they were able to do something amazing that we haven't been able to do in 50 years. I mean, they did it back in the 1960s. So that's amazing. I think we should be paid tribute to, and that's it. So I don't know, you know, if people want to doubt it then I don't know, whatever they want to do, but I don't argue with the, with the, you know, it's just like, just, you know, I do think they're being disrespectful to those who participated in it, but I'm not about to get in any debate with them. So usually like when someone, if someone like that appears, I'll usually excuse myself to go use the restroom and never come back to the <laughs> conversation. So that's a good thing. You might want to keep that in mind, folks, is when you're in one of these conversations, like, oh, I'll be right back. And then don't ever come back to the conversation because it's just a waste of time. A brilliant tactic. I like it. Okay. So yeah. let's end on a, on a, on a lighthearted note. And um, mm -hmm. I'm a, I like this question because this is one of my all time favorite shows. What are your memories of your experience on the set of the massive, massive show that is the Big Bang Theory? <laughs> yeah. That was pretty cool. I really loved being on that show. It was so much fun. And uh, I was asked, I was, NASA asked me to, when I was still with NASA, when I started my relationship with that whole group of folks over there, and they asked me to uh, to go uh, and meet with the uh, with the writers and producers of the show, because they had this idea about sending someone to space. And, and uh, they, you know, NASA, the guy at NASA's name was Bert Ulrich, who is... Uh, He's our liaison, still is for NASA uh, with uh, Hollywood. You know, if you want to make a movie or a TV show, want to involve NASA. So he said, I think you're the right guy. They want to speak to an astronaut. So I went out there and uh, I was out there anyway for something else. It, it, they weren't going to send me special, but it's like, if you're ever out in LA, go by. So I did that. I went by Warner Brothers Studios out in uh, LA and uh, and met with Chuck Lorre and uh, Bill Prady, who's become a very good friend of mine. He's a wonderful guy. He is, they were the co-creators of the Big Bang Theory and all their writers and have made, made made so many friends with all I'm friends with all of them, but they were just a bunch of really smart, funny people. And I was telling them stories, and uh, they were writing them down, and they seemed to like them. And then, then I helped them with the script. You know, some of the script ideas that they had. I just gave them some ideas and went out to see a taping of the of the show. You know, with uh, one of my colleagues and I flew out there to see it. And, uh, and then that was about it. And then a few months later, I got a note and, uh, it was from Bill Prady. And he said, uh, we have an idea. We're wondering if you can come on the show for a cameo. We're wondering if you can act. And I wrote back and said, I'd love to come on, but I, I don't know how to act. I mean, last acting job I had, I was in third grade. I was eight years old and I played a bird <laughs> in a school play. You know, I was a, I was a Robin. I was a bird in it. And he said, that's Okay. We just want you to be your, you've been yourself for a long time. Just be yourself. That's what we want. We want you to just be yourself. And I thought that was pretty good acting coach, you know, coaching for acting. And so I went there and I just played myself. I just was me. And, and, um, it was, it was wonderful experience. Um, it's very team oriented. The people are extremely nice. Everybody from the camera people to the, to the directors were great. All the actors were just wonderful. Mine Bialik, who's one of the actors, Gave me a very nice endorsement for the book. She's a good friend, along with uh, a lot of the other cast members and and the writers. I, so and, and like I said, this Bill Prady is one of my good friends. So I made so many great friends, and they're just fun people to be around and very very nice, good people. And uh, I was very fortunate because I don't know if it's always like that <laughs> on a TV set. 
I heard some other stories. I was horrified, you know, but, but these people were all great. And, uh, it was really fun to be a part of it. And, uh, and I've made a lot of, uh, lifelong friendships as a result. I haven't, the last time I was on that show was a long time ago. I think it was, I think my last appearance was, I guess I, I kind of had to, they put, they put me in sort of with some of my old footage in the final season, but I really haven't, you know, I didn't film anything with him for quite a few years. And, uh, it's been a while, but I still have those, those friendships, which are more important. So, yeah, it was a great experience, a great show and great group of people involved. Fantastic. Yeah, because when I mentioned to my brother, uh, I said, you'll mm -hmm. never guess what I've got coming on the show uh, this week. Mike Massimino, the first thing he said was a Big Bang Theory. Um, yeah, so it must, yeah, yeah. it must be strange for you yeah. for dedicating so much of your life to this amazing career and achieving all these unbelievable dreams i bet in the street you get also noticed a lot for being a character on the big bang theory that i probably more so than wow. uh absolutely more so wow. than being an astronaut that's for sure uh but that's okay i mean uh yeah I, like we were talking about pursuing your dream and what you love and what you like and i would have never thought it would lead to that you know i've i've gotten uh so many so many good friendships out of people i admire so much yeah, I know baseball isn't maybe necessarily that popular in England, but it's very popular here. And just today, the 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 player, the baseball player, who was the catcher, who's very important position on my favorite team, the New York Mets. And I watched. I became a baseball fan the same time that uh, the same year they walked on the moon. And uh, the catcher's name was Jerry Grody, and he and I became friends a few years ago. And I, I you know, he was again one of my heroes growing up, and. And I've gotten to know him and his wife. And I just got a note from his wife today that she wants to give Jerry a copy of the book for his birthday wow. <laughs> like, for Christmas. I'm sorry. So I was like, okay, you know, I felt it, wrote it to him and, and put it in the mail. I'm like, this is pretty cool. You know, this is a guy I watched when I was a little kid. So I've gotten to meet a lot of my heroes and got to do a lot of cool things. And I never could have imagined that would have happened. We wouldn't be having this conversation if I wasn't, you know, if I, if I didn't keep at it when I was trying to become an astronaut. So you never know where things are going to lead you. I would never, I mean, never in a million years could I ever predicted I'd be involved with a TV show like The Big Bang Theory, but that's what happened. All right. Well, before we let these guys um, know where they can buy the book, let me just, I just want to show you mm -hmm. something. Okay. So I recently, um, baseball isn't really big over here. Um, I recently yeah. went to uh, New York and I went to a Mets game. Um, oh, so there they, you go. They're my adopted yeah. team. So uh, we have oh, that right, in common. Those are my, that's my team. Yeah, I'm a big Mets fan amazing oh, well cool. we've talked a lot about the we've talked a lot about the uh, book today uh, moonshot Thank please you. let everyone listening watching know where they can go and check out this amazing book and buy a copy for yeah. themselves yeah you can buy it just anywhere books are sold uh, if you do it online you know amazon or whatever you have over there or work or your local bookseller should have it or be able to get it for you um, but it's available just about anywhere books are sold um, you can also order it from my website mikemassimino.com uh, we have like a little link to some of the booksellers here. Uh, um, I think you have them over in the UK. Amazon's over there in the UK. Yes. I'm assuming Barnes and Noble and some of the others are there too. So, uh, but wherever's easiest for you to get it, I would uh, I'd be uh, very pleased if you if you checked out a copy and and uh, hope you like it. Fantastic! I'll leave all the relevant links in the show notes below. Um, yeah. Other than that, Mike, thank you so much. It's all been right. an absolute honor to speak to you, my friend. Uh, thanks for having me.